everybody. This is Breaking Pita with Z. That's me, your host, Zohar Huber. And today I am here with an amazing woman, Namira Islam. She is the co-founder of something called Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, Muslim Arc. Hi, Namira. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. So today we're going to be talking about anti-racism in the Muslim and Arab world, which people don't actually know and many people won't admit happens quite a bit. Um, my personal story that I have is that, uh, I've witnessed people call anybody from the African American community or the black community, Abid in Arabic, which as you know, means slave. And, um, you know, when I try and correct them, they always tell me like, no, it's like Abdullah, which means slave of God. And I'm like, well, why don't you call me slave of God? Why are you calling only them that? And they're like, it's different. It's different. No, mofo. It's racist. Right. <laughs> that and is racism. That's absolutely such a huge widespread issue that we encountered early on. Um, one of our first kind of advisors, Dawood Walid, was on Twitter. Muslim Mark was founded on Twitter back in 2014. And throughout like all of 2013, he was actively calling people out on Twitter saying, you're using this word. Do you know what this word means? It means slave. Stop using it, right? Um, and the thing that we were kind of shocked by was that some of these, these are all young people, many of whom were from Dearborn, the fact that a lot of them just doubled down. Some of them were saying that they didn't know what it meant, that yep. they just grew up hearing it, yeah. so they didn't know what it meant, um, and then they apologized and stopped using it, but a large percentage of them were just insistent and adamant that they can say whatever they want, and it's their word. Um, and so that led to a hashtag that we launched, which was drop the A word, um, and we were encouraging people, hey, if you don't know what this means, we're telling you now. And so the A word being Abid, exactly. which means slave. And Dawood Walid, by the way, or Walid, is with uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations of Michigan. Right, he's executive director Executive there. director, yeah. And so, I mean, I've had the experiences, I mean, even my own father, you know, was racist. He, the, He's Iraqi, and we don't have a relationship at all, so um, I can talk about this. But, I mean, he told me never to bring a black man home, except he did not use black man. He used the N-word. Um, also, like, you know, we talked about this off air, but, like, my brother, for instance, would get really dark in the summertime, and my father would tell him, hey, stop going out in the summer and getting so dark because you're going to turn into one of those ends. And so, I mean, it was really used by him in the household. We were all against it. I would stand up against it. I would get off the dinner table sometimes if he would use it because I would get so upset about it. But this stuff happens. This happens not just in Arabic. It happens in English. Um, so tell me why. Why does this happen in the Muslim and Arab world? I know it happens here in America. But why the Muslim and Arab world? I mean, we have people from Sudan who are Arab, you know, and they're very dark. So how is that even accepted? This global phenomenon of anti-blackness, um, I think your story really highlights kind of the duality of it, where you're having somebody use both the A word and the N word as well, which the N word has such a history within the United States, and yet you're seeing this kind of globalized um, anti-blackness. And so we've often taken a look at the different elements of how anti-blackness plays out in specific societies. Um, and one thing that we talk about, I mean, in South Asia, for example, anti-blackness comes often from the caste system, where people who are lighter skinned um, were privileged within that society, given mm -hmm. more access to resources. And people who are darker skinned were often deemed um, untouchables. People from lowest castes were 
um, seen as somebody who is not worthy of humanity as much within the society. Um, and when we look back at the Middle East, at different places, we see this phenomenon that predates you know, the founding of the United States. Um, it's going back to the time of the prophet, peace be upon him, where you see um, this ad, uh, admonition against judging people based on tribal affiliation, yeah. um, priding oneself on one's own ethnic background and one's skin tone um, over other people. Now, of course, with racism and anti-blackness, it morphs over time. Um, and you see kind of back in, in the time of the prophet, peace be upon him, like, different people, um, even if they were both fairly darker skinned, but because of the tribal affiliations, seeing one you know, exert power over another one or insult people based yeah. on that. Um, for the Middle East in particular, we, we think about the dynamics of both like colonization, but then the tribal history, um, seeing kind of these, these tendencies of human beings. Human beings will stereotype each other and categorize each other. And that's a, a natural phenomenon for your brain to kind of uh, be able to process complicated information, but it's when we're looking at how society is structured where we use those categorizations to then discriminate and exert power over people from certain groups. That's where we're seeing this phenomenon of anti-racism, anti uh, of racism and anti-blackness. And, I mean, you talked a little bit about it, you know, like the caste system being darker, being lighter. I mean, if you go to parts of Asia, I mean, they have bleach creams for skin because if you're too dark... You know, that's a bad thing, and nobody's going to want you, especially as a woman. Um, nobody wants a dark Bengali woman. No one mm -hmm. wants a dark Indian woman. I went to Thailand, and they had, like, rows and rows of different kind of bleach creams, right. which are so terrible for the skin. Right. And um, so what? what is that about? Why, you know, is it bad to be dark? I mean, you're from Bangladesh, Mm -hmm. Have you witnessed anything like that? And, and what is that even about? Yeah, the phenomenon of the, the kind of uh, fair and lovely cream. Fair and, and lovely. Fair and lovely. South Asian is an so Indian sweet. company. And you see it sold in Africa and South America, Latin America, right? All over the world, you see this kind of um, millions of dollars spent on lightening one's skin. Um, and, and some of it comes from kind of internalizing beauty standards that are very Western, that mm -hmm. are very white, not mm -hmm. just Western of different backgrounds, but in particular white. Um, and then you're seeing kind of the very old notions of, you know, people who are um, more wealthy don't have to work out in the sun, and so therefore their skin isn't going to be as dark, so therefore those are the people who are powerful in society. Yeah. So you have all these uh, different stereotypes and other things that are that this is coming from, but especially nowadays it's not you see the standard of beauty that is tied to the white ideal because it's not just the skin creams, it's the eyelid surgeries and, and surgeries on your nose. And, um, you know, nowadays, plump lips and yeah. uh, certain body kind of standards are seen as popular and trendy, but they have historically not been. Um, and so you see kind of the elements of physical uh, stereotypes because, of course, not everybody within a certain racial category has the same features, right? Mm -hmm. People look different within each different category when it comes to range of skin tone, facial features, all of that. Um, but the reality is, is that we have a, a world where this happens. And growing up, um, I, I knew that my mom was darker amongst her sisters in particular, she was the darkest, but she also had a brother, her father, um, my grandfather was also very, very dark skinned, um, and I have a cousin who's very dark skinned. 
And knowing that kind of growing up, I knew that I had darker skin. My mom never subjected me to fear and lovely or anything like that. But, you know, the things around don't go outside in the sun, Mm -hmm. um, limit your time when you're out in the summer. Um, And then, of course, comments from aunties around, um, oh, you know, you got darker. And it's always said in this very ominous tone. You know, and one time I remember an auntie had said that to me. We were walking to some house together, and she was like, oh, you know, your skin tone has gotten really dark. And I was like, thank you. You know, and she kind of was like, wait, what? Wait, no, that wasn't a compliment. No, and I just flipped it because ultimately when uh, we're layering this with kind of the patriarchal norms around, like matchmaking, for example, that was often something that I um, was subject to, right? Where it would be like, oh, um, you know, what is her skin tone like? Yeah. And it's already seen as kind of a negative mark against you yeah. to have a skin tone that is not fair. Um, and, and lovely. And fair and lovely, right? Where people are like, oh, okay, well then, you know, the guy's family, I guess they'll still talk to you, right? Oh or like whether God. it balances out because yeah. of other characteristics. Yep, absolutely. That's just so ridiculous because I know we were talking, but like, you know, there are people who whose families are torn apart because, you know, they'll marry someone who's black um, or they'll date somebody who's black and they get disowned or things of that nature. I mean, it's very extreme. It's extreme in, it's in the culture. It's extreme in the religion. Yeah, it's it's horrendous behavior. And the fact that people will do this to their own family just goes to show how insidious this kind of um, anti-blackness Thinking. is. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've even talked about it, you know, like, there are mosques where, you know, a, an African-American will walk in or a black Muslim will walk in um, and they are not as welcomed as the Arab or the white Muslim. And that is so against the religion. That's against the religion. That's against morals. That's against really, you know, the way of thinking that we should have as Muslims. And so do people realize that? Do people realize that this is anti-Muslim it's funny because it's Muslim anti-racism collaborative, but really, I mean, that is also anti-Muslim, right? <laughs> to be anti-to be racist, is to be anti-Muslim. Absolutely. And one thing that we'd often get, we still get this sometimes, where people will be like, "Muslims can't be racist." I'm like, "Listen, Islam as a religion is not racist, but Muslims can be hella racist, yeah. right?" Um, and you see Just this like play out in can. so many different ways because. You've got people who are learning things from kind of the experts of Hollywood when they are coming from abroad. But then, you know, the the histories of colonization and all these other, like the caste system and all these things. So they're learning that um, and just internalizing these things. Then if they do come to the United States uh, and they're carrying this forward, it's, it's a problem. And you're seeing people who were born and raised in the United States because we grow up getting these narratives around... Um, anti-blackness around who is seen as as more worthy or more innocent or more valuable within our societies. Um, And especially as Muslims, we have this conversation quite a bit because you see the spectrum where sometimes uh, people assume that anti-blackness is showing up as racial slurs, which Mm -hmm. it is, um, and as very extreme ways of of anti-blackness. Um, but the reality is that it's an all-encompassing system. There's a pattern of behavior yeah. that exists that includes the exclusion at mosques, but it also includes the behavior on, on leadership committees, right, or on mosque boards. Um, it includes behavior at Islamic schools and how black Muslim children are treated not just by their peers, but also by teachers in these yeah. schools and by the parents of other students. Um, it includes uh, discrimination when somebody is applying for jobs um, and for housing and certain things where you will see people of color who are non-white 
completely using anti-black tropes um, and completely denying access to certain resources based solely on something like skin yeah. um, and like race. And you see that, I mean, you see that everywhere. You don't just see it, obviously, in, in you know, the you know, Muslim world or the Arab world, but you see that here, right here in our own backyard in Dearborn, Detroit. I mean, there are stories where, you know, I worked for a radio station. It was a talk radio station. So people called in and most of the listeners were black. And, uh, you know, it was me and another Arab on the air. And they would say, you know, the Arabs who own gas stations here are racist. And I mean, there's nothing I can say about it, but yeah, probably. Yep. You know, but there's nothing I... I can do to make those gas station owners not racist. So that's, it's a really interesting kind of, um, not development, I don't want to say development, but the the kind of campaigning to shift some of that, right? So, for example, with the corner stores and the liquor stores that are Arab-owned and majority uh, black neighborhoods, um, absolutely when it comes to anti-blackness, the fact that this is sitting within this larger Um, society of food deserts, right, and of a place where there's lack of access to quality groceries and all of these things, but you have all these liquor stores and corner stores, Um, and you have gas station owners. I know there was a story just a few months ago of um, a gas station owner who shot and killed um, a black youth over a bottle of of a drink, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't even something that expensive. It was like a $2 bottle of, of, of pop, I think. Um, and then you see the use of racial slurs, denial of service, kind of all these um, very dehumanizing behavior that yeah. happens. Um, so I w- would love to shout out like Iman um, Central out in Chicago because they had um, and they have this active ongoing campaign to turn liquor stores into grocery stores um, to make sure that we are dealing with some of these systemic issues, especially as Muslims, yeah. because that's the reality is that our faith, if we are people who believe in justice and who believe that we will be questioned someday for our actions, that we need to take action today. It's not something that we can do tomorrow because we never know when our last day is going to be. And our faith is one that has explicitly spoken about this issue. um, And it is one that that is very um, adamant about our own humility Mm -hmm. and always fighting against arrogance. And something like racism is complete arrogance over our own background and our own ethnic um, kind of heritage and all these things as against, you know, against somebody else. I have to ask, do you, I know it's sometimes difficult to be Muslim. It's sometimes difficult to be Arab and Muslim. Do you think it's much harder to be a black Arab Muslim? We've talked about the intersections of multiple identities. And one thing that we often bring up, um, the hashtag that we launched with being black and Muslim, that came up where people were exploring the nuances, both like the joys and inherent um, positive kind of uh, cultural uh, resiliencies that Mm -hmm. are there because of these different um, ethnic backgrounds and um, histories of ancestors and legacies that are there. But definitely of the hardships of having these intersecting multiple identities layered upon each other. Because when we're thinking about uh, the narratives that exist, there's a very specific anti-Muslim narrative, right? Um, that makes Muslims out to be brown and foreign yeah. when you know there's no clear ethnic majority among American Muslims. No. Um, but it's like when you have these anti-Muslim tropes, then you have the anti-black tropes. And especially for somebody who is Afro-Arab, so they're dealing with then the anti-Arab tropes as mm-hmm. well. And you're dealing with the layers, right, of like these so three many layers. different narratives that are all piling together 
where you are getting the brunt of all of them. Yeah. Um, and that's something that Three we Three minorities often, right there. Exactly. And we often talk about that within um, must-mark workshop spaces where we're unpacking how systemic racism works and we're like, okay, look at these narratives. Now imagine if you are then dealing with the impact of all of these narratives, yeah. right? Or multiple narratives layered upon each other. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, what can we do as a community? What can we do as families? I mean, I know that the younger generations, they're more accepting nowadays of everything, you know, sexuality, gender, et cetera, um, race. And so what can we do? I know that, for instance, me calling out somebody like, hey, don't use that word. It means slave. Use the actually actual word for black, you know, sued or soda. And is there something we can do to combat it? Can we even combat this? Absolutely. I think there's always actions that we can take. Um, we're picking up on uh, a legacy of anti-racist uh, anti behavior and, and the teachings, right? So we're, we have this history that we're coming from of people who've always resisted. So we have to carry that forward and continue resisting within our own lives um, and then passing that on for future generations. So I often talk about this in a, a number of different ways because um, especially with Muslim Mark workshops, we try to give that analytical framework, but then we try to give people tools. Yeah. So it's not just like, hey, here's everything that's, that's hard to overcome and all these problems, but you have nothing to do about it. So some of the things I often talk about is the narrative work um, and especially being mindful of what we're consuming on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, it's around us in magazines, in textbooks, in Hollywood, in the, ad, the commercials we see on TV. So we are constantly um, kind of sinking, all of these things are sinking in, mm -hmm. right, into our consciousness. So there's a lot of unlearning that we have to do um, yeah. to dismantle um, some of these narratives that are just residing, that sometimes are unconscious. We don't realize that we have these beliefs. Um, but then learning and relearning. Um, in this country, we don't get the accurate people's history of the nation, right? Yeah. We are often told stories um, that talk about Thanksgiving in a certain way. Um, that are and it's so happy, and yes, we're celebrating, right. and yay, and actually a bunch of Indians got killed. Right, completely erasing indigenous communities, completely uh, erasing Native American history, Native Americans who are not extinct, who are here in our modern day, who um, we can get to know all the different tribes that are within uh, this country. Um, and then thinking about the histories of, of people throughout mm -hmm. this country, who is seen as the heroes, right? When we have people who um, were enslaved uh, Africans who uh, instigated rebellions, right? When you have white people who fought alongside civil you don't rights hear about leaders, that. you don't hear those people's names because they're not seen as the heroes, right? Um, and that, sa that says something very specific around what this country is trying to worship. Yeah. And so that's a lot of the learning that we can do. Um, on that front, too, it's like once we're doing this learning, once we're working on our own kind of biases and our own kind of work, um, it's that focus then on deciding to intervene when we're yeah. seeing things happen around us, calling things out, leaving a dinner table, right? Um, making sure that people know that certain behavior is unacceptable around us, we won't stand for it, um, and then calling people to better behavior. Of course, there's so many different angles that people can take uh, to make change, whether it's changing the narratives, changing um, economic policy, so making sure that we ourselves are buying black, right? Yeah. And are putting our money um, with corporations or preferably with you know small businesses that actually live out our values. Yeah. Um, but ensuring that we are speaking up against injustice, that we are amplifying the stories of people, 
I often tell young people, especially, like, you can control your social media feed. Who are you following? Yeah. Who are you learning from? Unfollow those bitches who are, like, <laughs> anti-black and anti-everything. I mean, come on. Right. You don't need that energy in your Twitter feed. You can control that, right? And yeah. who are you following? Where are you getting your day-to-day kind of education, exactly. right? All kinds of amazing pages um, from Muslim Ark's own page, but then one that I really love on Facebook is the Zen Education Project, Mm -hmm. and they're often talking about that people's history of this country. Um, So there's all kinds of behavior modifications, things that we are shifting, things that we are learning, but making sure that we're taking that systems-based approach, that we're not just saying, I'm a good person, I can't be racist, right? Um, But focusing Mm -hmm. on the ways that racism is playing out in our society so that we are shifting that, and it's not just pushing the buck onto somebody else who's worse than I am, but focusing on our own behavior. Um, and then bringing other people on with that journey and making sure that we're actually, you know, uh, putting our money where our mouth is yeah. and that we're making tangible changes. Even things like showing up for jury duty, right? When you're a person of color and you're underrepresented in those kind of spaces. Um, but down to things like boycotting um, certain groups, you know, um, and aligning with forces for change yeah. uh, and following the leadership of people who are directly impacted by the systems that we have. Well, definitely, hopefully, the younger generations will instill this thinking into their kids and then their kids. And so, you know, hopefully mindsets will change. But unfortunately, I think it's going to be a slow process. It is slow. <laughs> um, there's always hope, though. And I think that's part of the work is that we're following this long line of of um, resistance and of leadership and activism. And it's the reality, um, you know, the saying of the prophet, peace be upon him, that even if the day of judgment was tomorrow, if you have like a seed in your hand, to still plant that seed. Yeah. Um, and that's the idea that even if we're doing work that we're not necessarily going to see the full outcome of, we're still doing the work for the sake of the work. Yeah, exactly. Um, and ensuring that future generations have the tools and are getting the knowledge that we're passing on um, to be able to make a change in the very specific forms of racism and anti-blackness that they're going to see because it always continues morphing over time. And I hope the Arabs and the Muslims who do listen to this podcast, I mean, I hope they take something away from this too, that, you know, it's, there should not be silence over racism because it really, it destroys things and stop using the A word, (laughs) stop using a bead in your language because it's so derogatory towards, you know, black people and black Muslims and black Arabs. And, you know, I just hope that everybody kind of takes something away from this podcast. There's so much that we can do, right, to make yeah. a difference, to make something better yep. than what it was. And if we can all invest in that, like our lives will be better. Other people's lives will be better. Yes. Um, and there's hope. There's always a hope and there's always something that somebody could do to make a change. Namira, thank you so much for being on with me today. I really appreciate it. This was very educational. So thank, thank you for you. having me. Really looking forward to talking more. Yeah, definitely.